when people refer to me as pastor, call me pastor, I, I, I find myself looking around like, who are they talking to? Because I never think of myself that way. If you've been around a while, you probably know that I've told uh, you before that if we see each other out in the community and you want to introduce me to one of your friends, I'd love to meet them. But please don't tell them I'm a pastor, right? Because if you're not used to going to church, there's nothing that kills a conversation more than finding out that you're talking to a pastor. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love what I do. I'm not embarrassed of being a pastor, but I am embarrassed of being known as a pastor. And I, I guess that's weird and contradictory, but, but there are so much baggage that come with church and, and pastors to people who aren't used to church. Now, I didn't grow up going to church, so I totally get where that baggage comes from. By the time I became a Christian, I went to church out of duty. I wasn't a big fan of churches. In fact, when Christine and I were in Chicago and I was going to seminary, I, I told her, I said, look, I'll do anything, anything. Really, I'm open to anything other than being a pastor. I for sure don't want to do that because I didn't like churches. I, I criticized churches. To be honest, I avoided churches obviously something has changed because here I stand on a Sunday morning, right? And I think one of the places it started to change was this verse that we read in the book of Acts. It says, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Think about what that's saying. It's saying that, that, that Jesus bought the church with his blood. Jesus loved the church so much that he died for the church. Later, as we go through the book of Ephesians in a couple weeks, we're going to come across a time when, when Jesus says that the church is his bride. So all of a sudden it starts to hit me that when I make fun of churches, when I disparage churches, when I neglect church, well, I'm neglecting, disparaging, and making fun of Jesus' bride, the, the one he loves. I'm, I'm mocking the one that Jesus died for. I mean, the reality is that we like Jesus a lot more than we like church. And that's not really a big shocker because Jesus is perfect and the church is far from being perfect. In fact, we've kind of made Jesus into our own little, you know, personal need meter, like our own little genie. And, and he meets our needs. He loves me and affirms me and says nice things about me and, and tells kind of fun little stories too. What's not to like about someone who meets our needs, or at least that's what we think he does? Imagine how that different that is than asking us to be sacrificially committed to a flawed group of people called the church. And that's what the church is, yeah? I mean, the church is an imperfect community made up of imperfect people. So there are really big holes in churches. It's really easy to criticize churches and to be right, like to level some legitimate criticisms. Yes, those criticisms are likely at least partially, if not totally, true. But we have to push a little further. The church is an imperfect community made up of imperfect people, of which I might be the most imperfect of all. In other words, I'm not like some innocent bystander sitting back with my clipboard, taking notes, criticizing the church, figuring out you know, what the church could do better, giving advice to the church. No, that's not the way it works. I, I'm part of the church. And when I'm part of the church, I make the problem worse. I'm not part of the solution. I'm part of the problem. 
The church is imperfect people of which I might be the most imperfect of all. And yet God has called us to be committed to this imperfect group of people. Well, how committed? Like, maybe I get some inspiration from it? That committed? Well, you know, the, the inspiration posters, the motivation posters, and I think they're all hokey. Hopefully you agree, otherwise you're going to be offended. But this one says motivation. And it says, if a pretty poster and a cute saying are all it takes to motivate you, you probably have a very easy job. The kind robots will be doing soon. Right? I mean, the, the people come to church like they maybe buy one of these posters. They need some inspo, right? So maybe they want a song that touches their heart or a story that brings a tear to their eye or they want a hug. They, they, they just need a little pick-me-up. And so that's how committed they are. They're as committed as long as the church gives them inspiration. And they'll come around when they need that inspiration. I don't think that's what God has in mind when he calls it to be committed to church. Maybe we, we have kind of a retail approach to church. Like we're committed in the sense that if the church meets our needs, if parking's good and coffee's easy to get to and the donut lines aren't too long and they sing the songs I like and the sermons, are, you know, gets in out on time so I can get off the other things I do, then I'll leave a nice little review. Yeah, no problem. Just meet my needs and I'll give you a good review. And if you don't meet my needs, well, I'll probably troll you online. But, you know, that's the way it goes. I don't think that's what, God has in mind either for being committed to the church. So today we're back in Ephesians 2, and we're going to start at the end of the chapter and work our way back up to the middle of it. So we're going to look for three images that, that God gives us to help explain his design, his plan for the church. We're going to start in Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. See, you, you used to be foreigners and strangers to each other, but you're now fellow citizens with God's people. That's the first image. And members of his household. That's the second one. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. That's the third image. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Christians are no longer foreigners and strangers to each other, but now God has something different for them. God's plan for the church is to bring them together, and here's where the images come in. The first image is we are citizens, and citizens belong to a nation. And if we're part of the same nation, then, then God is our king, and what we share in common together is kind of a, a social contract that, that we agree to follow as citizens of God's nation. The second image is go, goes a little bit deeper than that. And we're called siblings, like brothers and sisters, part of God's family. He is our father. And of course, we share something uh, more in common than, than uh, uh, people that share the same nation, right? Siblings have genetics in common. They have a shared history, a shared culture and values in common. But then the next image it becomes a little deeper, a little more intimate. Because in this image, we are stones that God is using to build a temple. And God comes to live inside of us. So three images that give us God's plan for the church. We are citizens of a nation. We are siblings, a part of the same family. We are a temple where God lives. I mean, this sounds fabulous, doesn't it? God is our king. God is our father. And God is the spirit living in us. Church must be awesome. It must be like this big kumbaya group hug. Unless you've been in church. 
And then you know, mm, it's, 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 not so, it's not so awesome, is it? Because churches have conflict and churches divide and split. And it's been that way from the beginning. That's not new. That's from the beginning. If you go back into the uh, uh, New Testament, you find all kinds of reasons that the church divided, all kinds of things they had conflict over. I mean, this is just a very partial list. But churches divided over leaders, which leader they like best, and wealth, the haves versus the have-nots, and personal squabbles, and ministry strategy, and holy days, and what food you can eat on what day, and genealogies. I mean, it's a long list. Probably the, the one you see dealt with most in the New Testament are the divisions around ethnicity and race. The Apostle Paul addresses those issues, race and ethnicity, in almost every book that he writes. See, Jews and Gentiles, they hated each other. Gentiles, by the way, is just a non-Jewish person. So Jews hated the Gentiles because they had been oppressed by one Gentile empire after another. It was the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks. And at the time this is being written, the Jews were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. Rome had crucified thousands of Jews. Now, for their part, the Gentiles thought the Jews were weird. They thought all their laws made them very odd. And they thought they were, the Jews were kind of unsophisticated, backwater, foolish. So here's the Apostle Paul. He comes to a city like Ephesus, and he's telling people about Jesus and what he's done on the cross and the resurrection and his plan for the world. And Jews are, are coming to faith in Jesus, and Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. Now, what's Paul going to do? Well, what he could have done is said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over here on this street and we're going to establish the first church of Gentile Christians. That's the name of the church. First church of Gentile Christians. And on this street, we're going to establish the first church of Jewish Christians. He could have done that. He didn't. He said, you guys who hate each other and have this ethnic and, and racial divide between you, guess what? You need to learn to do church together. The people you hated, you now need to learn how to do church together with. But this is going to be fun, yeah? <laughs> Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Okay, this sounds confusing. It's really not. Paul's saying, look, there's these same two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews marked themselves off by being circumcised. The Gentiles weren't circumcised. So the Jews said, hey, we're the circumcision. We're the people that have God's law. We're the people that are the good people. The uncircumcised, that's what they would call the Gentiles. The uncircumcised, they're the bad people. Circumcision became a boundary marker, a, a way for Jews to show that they were separate from the Gentiles and better than the Gentiles. It was a way of saying, this is team us. And, and, and they're, they're the them in the world. Well, our world right now has lots of ways that you can divide up into the good people and the bad people, right? The team us and the team them. We have all kinds of divisions in our fractured world. And a lot of those right now, the most pressing ones that all of us feel are, are how people respond to COVID and politics. Us? And them. 
Verse 14. For he himself, now this is talking about Jesus. That's who Paul's talking about. Jesus is our peace, who's made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So what two groups is Paul thinking of that God is making one in Jesus? It's the Jews and the Gentiles. But really it could be any, any two groups that are divided Look what Paul writes in Galatians 3. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. See, here's that issue again. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, so Paul says that God has made the two groups into one. Any two groups out there that find themselves divided, God wants to make them one in Jesus. But when they're one in Jesus, it doesn't mean that there's no differences between them. There still were differences between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men or women. God doesn't erase those differences in Jesus. But what he's saying is that, that, that what they have in common is, in Jesus is greater than what divides them. What he's saying is that their differences should not keep them from unity in Jesus. So two women on our staff team were at a Christmas party just uh, a couple months ago. And uh, the people who were hosting the party, they got gifts for the, the people who were uh, invited. And, and they tried to get something small but fun that was unique to that person, something that person would really like. Well, at the end of the party, these two women, who were just you know, two of many at the party, they got together and took a picture. And you can see them here. Now, if you can't tell exactly what they're holding up, they're holding up the gifts that they were gotten at the party. And the one on the left is holding up Barack Obama's autobiography. And the one on the right is holding up a pair of Trump socks. And, and so here's the deal. It is that they had talked about these issues in their group. I mean, the group knew to get this one, the Obama book, and this one, the Trump socks, right? So it wasn't as if they just shoved all this down and never talked about it. But it was that they could talk about it, talk about differences, and yet be friends because they didn't reduce each other to only a political view. They knew that what they had in common in Jesus was greater than their uh, political differences. So they could have fun with it and take a picture together because their friendship is bigger than politics. Their friendship is defined by their faith. Now, here's the deal. I, I just know I've done this long enough to know that some of you are really bothered by that. You're really bothered by it. See, I, you thought you were going to a church or you were at least trying to find a church where everybody was on team you, right? Everybody was one of you. You thought you were going to a church where everybody thought like you did. If that's what you're looking for, let me assure you, this is the wrong church for you. Because this church, it welcomes uh, conservatives and progressives, the double-masked and the anti-vaxxer. It, it welcomes black and Latino and Asian and white, the rich and the poor, the working class and the pajama class, the able and the disabled, the PhDs and the GEDs. And what happens is we say we're all going to come and learn about Jesus together. We're going to learn from one another. The us is going to learn from the them and vice versa. We're going to learn to love one another and to celebrate what we have in common in Jesus. 
And by God's grace, God has given us this, this incredible opportunity to show a divided and fractured world that there is a better way in Jesus. But if what we have are all the same fractures and all the same divisions that the world has, why would anyone look to us for leadership? But if we can bring people from all different places, different politics, different races, different economics, people of all different places, if we can come together in Jesus and show the unity that we have that doesn't erase the differences, but shows that what we have in Jesus is greater than everything else that we have that, that, that's different about us, then we have the opportunity to show the world a better way. We have the opportunity to live like we're united not agree on everything, united in Jesus. And that is the greatest thing, the thing that is most important to us. And the reason we can live united is because Jesus is our peace and he has torn down the dividing wall. He has made two groups one. Back in the 90s, there was this big thing called Promise Keepers. It was a kind of a men's ministry thing. They'd hold these big stadium events. And I hadn't been a Christian that long. And I, to be honest, I really wasn't into that kind of thing. But some guys were going to Kansas City to Arrowhead to one of these events. I was like, I'll, I'll go, sure. And the, the, this was a time when Promise Keepers was really emphasizing racial reconciliation. And so they were singing a song called Let the Walls Fall Down. Now that song was based on this passage in Ephesians 2, but I didn't know my Bible well enough to have any idea that it was based on a biblical passage. So I'm listening to them sing this song, and I'm thinking, man, this is kind of dumb, you know? It's, it's so sad that they have uh, left the gospel, left the faith, and they're, they're singing about social issues. You know, this is, this is a bummer. And then over time, reflecting back, I, I see that they weren't singing about social issues. They were singing about gospel issues. They hadn't left the faith. They were being extremely biblical. They weren't dumb. I was the dumb one, right? I was the dumb one. But I get it. When you come to me and say, hey, I, I think the crossing is, is leaving the Bible and the faith and Jesus and the things we should be focused on because we're talking about a race or politics or these other issues. I, I, I get where you're coming from. I understand. But all divisions, all divisions are gospel issues. All divisions inside the church and all divisions outside the church at some point get back to the gospel because God cares about reconciliation, reconciliation between groups, reconciliation that's racial or economic, or political, or generational, or gender. God cares about it. It's part of the gospel. Now, see, see, we've narrowed the gospel down, so we think it just is like me and God, just this individual, personal thing, kind of this vertical relationship between me and God, between you and God. And the gospel is that, but the gospel is more than that, because the gospel is also about your relationship to each other. That's what we're learning in Ephesians 2. I hope you get it. Last week in the first half of the chapter, Dave showed us how the, the gospel reconciles us to God. By grace through faith, we have been saved. And now that same gospel in the second half of the chapter says that we are reconciled to each other. First half of the chapter, vertical, us and God. The second half of the chapter, horizontal, us and each other. It's what John meant in 1 John when he says, you can't love God and hate your brother. 
because the vertical and the horizontal are connected in Jesus, in the gospel. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He's made the two groups one, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. God had given the Jewish people the law and the law was very good, but they took that good gift from God and then used it to look down on other people. They took the good gift that God had given them and allowed that to become a barrier, a dividing wall between them and and Gentiles. I don't know if schools still do this, probably not. I I don't know though. But when I was in grade school, what they would do is they would take a class, like say fifth grade, and they would divide it up into different sections with different teachers. And they did it based on academic ability. You know, the smarter people in this class, the next smart in this class, down the row. And they didn't tell teachers, or they didn't tell the, the, the students or the parents that. But, you know, people figured it out pretty quick. And then what did people do when they, as soon as they realized that they were in a class based on, based on their academic ability? They used it against others. It, it became a dividing wall. A good thing, academic ability, became a bad thing when it became a thing that divided us from each other. Verse 15. His purpose, God's purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which he put to death their hostility. So so what's the hostility? Well, the hostility is anything in my life that makes me feel superior to you. Anything that allows me to put a dividing wall up between me and you. But it's not just individual to individual. It can be group to group, right? So the, 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 the hostility could be any way one group looks at themselves as being better than or superior to another. And Jesus, he defeated all those ways we divide ourselves. He, all that hostility, he defeated on the cross because on the cross, all of us are broken. All of us are sinners. All of us need God's grace. All of us need to be rescued. The, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody's better than anybody else at the foot of the cross. We're all in need. Okay, but, but let's think a little bit more about this Jew-Gentile split. It's in almost every letter Paul writes. It's a really big deal to him and therefore a big deal to God. So it should be a big deal to us. The closest thing that we have to that Jew-Gentile split, it's not the exact same, but the closest thing is the division that we see in our churches based on race. Based on race. Dr. King, several times on different occasions, said that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America. And I think that's still true in large part. So we've got to ask ourselves, why is that? Is that God's heart? Is that what God wants? I think we got to wrestle with it. It's not because of doctrine, because you can walk into churches that are predominantly black and churches that are predominantly white, and you can see that they believe uh, the, the same things. It's not doctrine that is dividing. If you go back in history, what you find is that it was a refusal. What divided people was a refusal to make room for people different than us. If you go back in history and look, what you'll find is that, that uh, black members of churches were treated so poorly from segregated seating to plenty of other offenses. 
that they just said, okay, clearly we're not wanted, and they walked out. And that's how the black church was formed. Sometimes it wasn't just kicking people out. It was not letting them in to begin with. A high school in town uh, called Tolton High School, named after Father Tolton. That's absolutely all I knew until recently. But here's the backstory. Father Augustus Tolton was born in 1854 in northeast Missouri. He was born as a slave. And the, the slave owners baptized him Catholic. At some point during the Civil War, his family was able to flee into the free state of Illinois. He, he was able to go to Catholic grade school, Catholic school. And, and eventually he gets to a point where he's able to, to, to buy his freedom, to be out of the, the yoke of slavery. And, and he wants to go to seminary and be a Catholic priest. But at that time, there were no Catholic seminaries in America that would allow him to attend because he was black. And so he worked for 10 years. He worked, he saved, he had other people who gave him money to help him. He was saving up so that he could go to seminary and study to be a priest. But in order to do it, he had to go to Rome. In Rome, he gets his education and he gets ordained to, to, and he wants to come back into the United States. And the cardinal who ordained uh, Father Augustus Tolton said this to him. He said, if America has never seen a black priest, it will see one now in you. And he faithfully pastored St. Monica's Catholic Church on the south side of Chicago, a, a church that would, in his life, remain all black. But he didn't have to be that way, did it? It didn't have to do that way. We could have done it a different way. We could have uh, made room in churches for people who were different. We could have heard Jesus' call that he is our peace, that he tore down the dividing wall, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, that no one is more superior to anyone else. Daryl Davis, he, he was an incredible musician, played the keys for uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry. But the most interesting, the interesting thing about him is not his musical talent or where that's taken him. It's that he converts clan members out of the clan. He literally, without exaggeration, goes to clan rallies and clan meetings and builds relationships with people who hate him. Here's what he says. If you spend five minutes with your arch enemy, you'll find that you have something in common with him or her. And the more you find in common and you build upon what you have in common, the things you have in contrast, like skin color, matter less and less. If, if that's true of just two people who meet each other at a clan rally, how much more should it be true of us that what we have in common is far greater than our differences? What do we have in common? Well, what has Paul just told us in Ephesians? What he's told us is that in Christ, we have in common that God has set his love on us, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we have been adopted or sons and daughters of God's family, that he is our father, that he has redeemed us by the precious blood of Christ out of bondage to sin and slavery, that we have been given a hope that will never perish, spoil, or fade, that resurrection power is at work in us and for us, that through faith in Christ, we have been reconciled to God. That's what we have in common. 
so what are the differences again? Remind me, because they pale in comparison, like a candle pales in the light of the sun. So do our differences pale in comparison to all that God has made us, all that we are united in Jesus. All of our differences, it's not that they're not real. It's not that they're not substantive. It's just that they're not as important. That's why we can live united because God has united this already through Jesus. No one here is superior. No group is superior. Not in Jesus. We all need God's grace. Let's ask him for it now. Would you bow your head with me? See, we all need to be like Daryl Davis. It doesn't mean that we all need to go to a Klan rally. But it means that we all need to figure out how to build bridges to people who are different than us, even people who hate us. We need to figure out, God, what are walls that you want us to tear down? What are walls, that God, that we need to tear down and bridges that we build? Who is it, Father, that I need to extend grace to? Who is it, Father, that, that we need to believe the best about? Who is it, Father, that you have called us to love that's really different than us? Oh, Jesus, this is one of the hardest things that you ask us to do. We are so confident that we are right, that we are good. How foolish we must look in your eyes. How foolish we must look. Father, I pray that we would be humbled to know that in Jesus we were rescued from sin and darkness and that in Jesus we can love our neighbor even if that neighbor is really, really different. Even if that neighbor is wrong, we can love him. Oh, Jesus, give us the grace. We need it. We can't do it on our own. We've proven that. Give us grace, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great Sunday.